we started last week, we really um, sort of gave an introduction. I don't think we got too far last week. For me. Um, but but uh, I was going to ask for a recap, but I guess yeah, I don't yeah, need no, to. You didn't miss much. Just a lot of people screaming at each other. <laughs> um, so uh, so we the focus what we want to get to is the Texas abortion law. We haven't. You know, we've, we mentioned, we discussed it a little last week, but really, again, how does Jewish law, how does halacha apply um, to the Texas abortion law? So, and eventually we'll get there, um, but we need to give, this week, try to give just, again, the basic sources within Jewish law discussing abortion to understand the background, and then we could apply it, um, hopefully, to the Texas abortion law. Um, and as we mentioned last week, there's a big difference between, um, interestingly enough, between abortions of Jewish babies and non-Jewish babies. We're more strict with the non-Jews performing abortions than Jews, as we're going to see. So that's something that's relevant here also, where the majority of the state is obviously not non-Jewish in Texas. So um, that's also going to be relevant. And the question becomes, how... Do we as Jews, should we be protesting? Should we not be protesting? Because again, there's different laws for Jews and, and non-Jews um, as applied here. So, so let's just begin just with the basic background. So I'm going to share this sheet. Someone else. Does that mean you're going to be suing non-Jews all across the state of Texas for abortions? No, they might be suing us. They might be suing me as a rabbi. If I advise someone that to get an abortion, then we could, then clergy could be sued. Now, if you give advice to a couple or a woman to get an abortion, um, and it's an illegal abortion according to the law of Texas, even though halachically might be permitted, so you, I could be sued. That's part of the issue. Um, so, um, so we'll get so we'll get to all that today. Again, I want to get first to the basic sources. So I'm going to share a handout here. Um, let me see if I can get it up here. Can everyone see that handout? Okay, so I believe we read number one last week. We thought we'd get through to number 11. We got through number one. So I'm going to read, uh, start with number two this week, which I don't think we read last week. So this is a quote from a um, someone, a modern uh, contemporary rabbi who just, he died, uh, I think, two, three years ago. He lived in Israel. He's the son-in-law of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. His name was Aaron Lichtenstein. He was a Rosh Hashiva of a, a Hezder Yeshiva in Israel. And he writes like this. This is, again, written um, in 1991, just to put it into context. He says, The reader has sure, surely discerned that in a number of places I have refrained from setting down definitive conclusions, but have been satisfied to indicate general principles, tendencies, and possibilities in the halacha. This approach is not merely the product of modesty or hesitation in resolving debates among halachic titans. It is rooted in a view of the nature of psak, which means halachic rulings, um, Jewish law rulings, in general, and regarding this topic specifically. These are areas where, on the one hand, the halachic details are not clearly fleshed out in the Talmud and Rishonim, means the early authorities, and on the other hand, the personal circumstances are often complex and perplexing. In such areas, there is room, and in my opinion, an obligation for a measure of flexibility. Okay, so this is a very important aspect, as we discussed in many areas of halacha, which is that um, when it comes to halacha, halacha is very nuanced. Judaism is not black and white, which, as we know, uh, most Christianity is. Birth? You know, 
Christianity is, uh, is uh, they call the church of the no. Um, so Judaism is not the synagogue of the no. No, N-O. Um, we don't say no to everything. Say no to a lot of things, but, but uh, um, Christianity is very black and white, especially when it comes to abortion, but in many of these type of areas. So Judaism is very nuanced. There's no such thing as a, a general no. We don't have, we have principles, and each case, as we discussed last week, is very nuanced, and uh, even defining what's called, uh, let's say, danger to the life of the mother, as we're going to talk about, is it, you know, why, in which cases it's considered a danger to the life of the mother, emotional danger, what's considered emotional danger, so these are all nuanced, and he's going to say, and as he's going to say, therefore, in each case, really, has to be discussed with a competent um, medical professional and a competent halachic authority. So, yes, there's general principles as we're going to see in halacha, but it's they're very nuanced, and we'll get into some of those nuance nuanced cases. Of course, the state of Texas, the law is very non-nuanced, which is one of the issues as we'll discuss. So, um, so, but he's saying here, the, he's saying an interesting thing, which I'm not saying I agree with him per se, but he's saying halacha specifically did not. Um, make it clear when it comes to abortion, as we'll see. It's very confusing. There are numerous, you know, contradictory sources within the Torah itself, which seem to imply if a fetus is considered a life, it's not considered a life, etc. Um, and he's saying it specifically was done that way in order to to give the rabbi certain flexibility, of course, within the realm of halacha, staying in the, in the box, um, within the box, to make decisions in each case based on the nuances of that case. So that's that's uh, something which very fascinating statement he's making in general and specifically related to abortion. A sensitive posek, he says, which is halachic decisor, recognizes both the gravity of the personal situation and the seriousness of the halachic factors. This approach is neither evasive nor discriminatory. The flexibility arises from recognition that halachic rulings are not and should not be the output of human microcomputers, but of thinking human beings. A recognition that these rulings must be applied to concrete situations with a bold effort to achieve the optimal moral and halachic balance among the various factors. Okay? Um, so he's saying specifically it wasn't, it's not black and white for obvious reasons and the sensitivities of, of these cases. Thus it is the case that halachic rulings have more of the character of general directives than specific dis- decisive rulings within set limits, of course. Right, so you can't, not to put down any denominations, but you can't, you know, just make up your own rules and change the rules and just uh, delete a, a, a verse in the Torah. That's not what we're talking about. It doesn't mean, when he says flexibility, it doesn't mean to just press delete and, uh, you know, let's take this verse out of the Torah. Or, or let's say it just means, you know, go with your emotions and do what you think, um, you know, you feel is best in today's moral climate. That's not what it means. It means within the halachic guidelines, um, there is flexibility flexibility um, um, with with uh, the, the general principles. And when the POSIC is not absolutely convinced respecting the point of issue, okay, it goes on. But this is a very, so it's an interesting perspective, specifically as related to abortion, as we're saying, um, where it is not black and white, and it's very nuanced, as we're, as we're going to talk about, very different than other religions. And that's the beauty of Judaism, I think, in, in all uh, areas of halacha, that uh, we're always, we never uh, are extreme. We never take either to the right or to the left, Democrat, Republican, blue, white, whatever you, whatever your team you pick, usually 
there's some aspects that will fit with Judaism and some that won't. So that's why when people ask me, and that's why Alan, what you mentioned before, Democrats, Republicans, this Judaism is usually very much centrist, as we said last week. We take a little from here, a little from here, we make, that's why we like Chalant. It's like a Chalant. Um, uh, also <laughs> Ron, everything is subjective when I say extreme. <laughs> You know, your my idea of extreme and your idea of extreme is obviously very different. So, we well, yes. also get that a fundamental difference in general between uh, contemporary secular bioethics and Jewish bioethics. What they're saying here is that there's many laws, and sometimes they're better defined, sometimes they're not as well defined, and there are also interesting personal situations involved in any case. This is a casuistic approach to bioethical dilemmas. You have to look at the facts of the case, see which laws apply, and then apply them with using wisdom and judgment of a, a post or judge or member. Whereas temporary bioethics, there are four fundamental principles, and that's it. Yes. You have to cram everything into the, you start with those principles, and then everything else is dependent upon those principles. It's a completely opposite approach the traditional Jewish approach in general, and it's very obvious yes. in the case of abortion. Yeah, so you're pointing out that it's I not only religious ethics, it's even secular ethics is is sometimes, it's a box, it has to fit in the box, as opposed to Judaism. Yes, Karen, what were you going to say? I, I think we've evolved, though, uh, on the uh, secular bioethics. I think, you know, most of what I do and teach is casuistry, and most of what I've, you know, what I've seen, I think we're coming away from that principalism, because it doesn't work. Maybe in Canada. Maybe in Canada. You're coming away from it, Karen. I'm not sure the uh, secular, most secular bioethics are coming away from it. You may be coming away from it. Well, I mean, I trained in Chicago at the at the McLean Center for Bioethics, and it's, it's very much that is the approach, is a, a casuistic approach. Okay. Shelly, you're just old school, I think, is what she's saying. Don't be insulted. There's nothing wrong with old school. I would never say that. <laughs> joke, joke. Okay, so so what? What? Another. I just want to point out one other important thing here is, therefore, when you're dealing with case of abortion, as we're saying specifically abortion, or or many of these type of major ethical, you know, medical ethical questions, is you can't just go to any Tom, Dick, and Harry rabbi who has no experience in that field. Um, and also doesn't necessarily understand the medicine, as we'll see, that's a big part, as we mentioned many times, whether it's COVID or whatever the case is, if the rabbi doesn't, doesn't know, doesn't understand medicine, and, and it doesn't mean he had to go to medical school, but if he doesn't have experience dealing with, with uh, medical terms, and, and even in many cases reading um, studies, understanding studies and, and, uh, and medical journals, he shouldn't really be uh, ruling on these issues. Okay, so which is a problem today because many rabbis just, um, as the rest of the world, use Google many times to figure things out, which is not a healthy thing, as I'm sure you know. I'm sure there are many doctors who also use Google, but so it's a it's a problem today. Listen, Google has made life easier for rabbis and doctors um, to find sources and things like that. But again, if that's if you don't have if you're not a major posik, and specifically when it comes to abortion, I can tell you in the traditional world that's the way it works. You go to you know a someone who's has experience in this in these issues specifically. Um, such as a rab rabbi, Dr. Steinberg, or someone like that. If someone goes to their personal rabbi, and usually they don't, they're not uh, proficient in this area, they're probably anyway going to call 
you know, someone like a Dr. Steinberg in many cases anyway. So that's important to know. It doesn't mean just mean to go ask any rabbi and he says, okay, yes, yes, yes or no. It has to be um, in consultation with, with post-kim and again, the me- and the medical facts have to be very clear, which is one of the things we discussed this past year within COVID because there are no medical facts or at least there's, there are multiple medical facts, con- conf- conflicting medical facts. So that becomes an issue of how does, you know, what do you, you the rabbi can again only base it on the medicine. Um, so it's to me the same thing here when you have a, you know, case where let's say, uh, you know, they take an ultrasound and there's issues with, with the fetus or whatever the case is, where the woman has to have abortion, meaning the the rabbi, if he's going to be ruling in that case, needs to know all the statistics of of the specific illness and what the ultrasound is showing and etc etc so he has to be in consultation with the doctors and understand everything so that's an important another thing to note okay so we're going to move on here to some of the basic sources we're not going to be able to cover all the sources literally pages and pages but at least we'll start with the basic biblical text and then try from there to to just understand the as he mentioned the conflicting sources as Rabbi Lichtenstein mentioned, and and then try to figure out is if the first question is is a fetus or life or not. Um, now, what's interesting is just to get that out of the way, Christianity one of their key points they're stuck on when it comes to abortion, Catholicism, not only Christianity, all of Catholicism. I mean, sorry, Christianity is um, is they say once the soul enters, uh, the fetus has a soul, and that's it. Once uh, th- therefore the fetus is a full life. So what's interesting is Judaism. The Gemara says. The soul enters, uh, I think even, I, th- I believe, I don't have the source in front of me, but at conception, there is a soul. But the soul is not necessarily what decides. Just because there's a soul doesn't mean it's considered a full life um, um, for a fetus. Okay, so that's important to note. The fact, one of, uh, from again, the little I understand about the um, Christian viewpoint is, at least the Catholic viewpoint is that the soul, because the fetus has a soul, therefore it's full life. Judaism clearly does not agree with that statement. Soul, just because the soul is, just because it has a soul, doesn't mean it's considered a full life, as we're going to see. So we're going to start with the the first uh, verse here. Again, we'll try to get through the sources today, and then next week we'll move on to applying this to Texas law. Um, so in Exodus, the verse this is in Parsha Mishpatim. It says, "One who strikes in ish." Okay, and we'll define what ish means. Um, it's usually translated as a man, but obviously, man means a man or a woman, a human, a human, a human life who then dies will be put to death. So, as we know, the Torah believes in capital punishment to a certain extent. It's very strict, um, almost impossible to get to an actual capital punishment, but but on, on paper, technically, capital punishment exists for murder. Okay, if someone kills someone, and here it seems to be very clearly saying, the word ish, this is why it's always better in the Hebrew, but I got it here in the English, um, ish in Hebrew, again, usually is used in the context of a an adult, uh, an adult person. Okay, so what happens, so the implication would be here, maybe if it's a minor, but here I think the Gemara says no, ish referring to everyone, but clearly seems to be excluding a fetus is not a ish. We never refer to a a, um, a in utero fetus as an ish. So the, the simple reading of this passage would seem to exclude um, the, let's say, the, the striking of a fetus from capital punishment. 
Okay, in that sense, it's somewhat implicating that it's not the same, it's not equal to a life of a full-fledged human. Okay, that's verse number one. Now, in that same parish, a few verses later, it discusses a case of a salt and battery. And it says when two men are fighting, and then it's not limited to men, that's just in Hebrew the word is, is because there's two different words for man and woman, so it's ish and isha, so the Torah, the, the, the collective language is just always ish. So it says when two, when two people are fighting, they strike a pre- and they strike a pregnant woman, so one strikes a pregnant woman and her ch- children emerge, or child emerges, but there is no death for her, that means she was not, the woman um, did not die in this assault, he shall be punished as established upon him by the woman's husband, and we'll explain what that means. Sounds kind of sexist, and it probably is. And he shall pay it in court. And if there is death, you shall give a life for a life. That means if the woman, if the adult woman dies, then it goes back to um, what's called a life for a life, and not gonna, that's, again, capital, maybe not capital, depending if it was intentional or not. Um, but, we'll, but we're not going to focus on that. The, the, the key part here we want to focus is the Torah seems to be saying if there's no death to the woman, she's a pregnant woman, again, two people are fighting, they strike a pregnant woman, um, intentionally, unintentionally, we'll get, we'll maybe, we'll, we're not going to focus on that for now. And it says if the woman does not die, even though this assault caused her to miscarry, she lost, her children emerged, meaning and they're, they're not viable, um, that's the assumption, it's a miscarriage, he shall pay it in court. So meaning, all that there is here is financial purely financial remuneration, and there's no, there's nothing more than financial. So that alone, the, again, the, the verse right before this said, if you kill someone, if you kill a person, it's a death penalty, it's a capital crime. Okay, and here, it's saying if you kill, it seems like if you kill a fetus, it seems the implication would be it's purely financial. Okay, so clearly this, the implication from this verse off the bat would be very clearly that, um, that it's not considered a full life. A fetus would not be considered a full life. Okay, um, now just to, to get the sexist part out of the way, why does it say um, established upon him by the woman's husband? So just a side point, in case just to defend the sexism of the Torah. Um, the way I understand it is, and as the Gemara explains, since the financial obligations of a child, in, at least in those days, were completely on the husband, the husband has all financial obligations, um, you know, through medical school, as we know, if you're a Jewish parent. So the, right, the father has to pay all the bills until the child graduates from medical school. So, so therefore, the payment is to the woman's husband, um, um, when it's in, in this case where there's financial remuneration, since he is liable for all costs of the children. Okay, that's the, that's the way I understand it. Again, that's a side point. Um, okay, so that's source number, here we have it as number five. I'm going to move on down. Okay, any questions on that source? Anyone have a problem with that? And there is one question which I'm not answering, which because I, I, I don't remember the answer offhand today, is the case here. That this might not be such a great proof in the sense of this was seems to be unintentional. Two men were fighting and mistakenly struck the woman. So it could be it's saying since it was unintentional, maybe that's why it's only financial remuneration. So I don't remember what the 
how the Talmud addresses that question, but it is. So where, where, is, where do they address the injury to the pregnant woman? Meaning to the woman or the fetus? We understand the fetus is dead, supposedly, and that's going to be paid in court. But what about remuneration for the injury to... Yeah, so that's 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 already discussed. Anyone who you injure is five forms of damage. That's also right in this parish, very close to this verse. Why isn't that mentioned here? No, because that's obvious. Obviously, if you harmed another human, there's a whole, whole... The Torah discusses that at length, what happens. Here, we're specifically addressing the fetus... Um, in, in a pregnant woman. The woman herself, of course, has to be renumerated. That's that's a whole, that's what I'm saying. There's five, at least, five or six verses right before or after this, I don't remember, dealing with damages when you harm another it human being. It seems like it would have been an obvious asterisk to just okay. say this was referred elsewhere. The Torah doesn't have asterisks. So, it, it, meaning you don't have to say it. Again, the Torah doesn't repeat words. So, the fa- that's there's no question that she has to be paid for whatever damages occurred to her. It could be the husband gets that too. That's a different issue. The husband might be entitled to that to those damages, but that's a that's again it's a it's a tort question. Here we're discussing with the Torah's pointing out. Don't think even though they quote unquote uh, destroyed the fetus that it's it's only it's only monetary remuneration. That's what the Torah is addressing in this specific verse. Alan, what happened? You said something and then you left. I said Isha's is considered along with the age if the shah is injured. Yeah, I mean, again, that's uh, that's the standard damages. With their five forms of damages, um, you know, which is nezek, tsar, which is pain. Ripoy is, is medical, the medical bills have to I'm pay. I'm asking, you know, so yeah. it seems like there's not a parallel structure in this statement. The first part has to do with the fetus dying. And then at the very end, it says, if there is death... And we presume death not being about the fetus. Right. We presume death to be about the woman. Yes. You shall give a life for a life. So it seems that this statement is really not well constructed. In the beginning, it's talking about the death of a fetus. At the end, it's talking about the death of the woman. But it has no financial ramifications for injury to the woman because what you're stating is it's just obvious. Yes. Yes, that's it the way I understand like it. But I, I, I agree with you that the verse is not well structured. This is not well edited by whoever yes. wrote it. Yes, that's it, why... It's not well edited, but the earlier versions, I'm going to stick up Viosi in this case, the earlier versions indicate that in any other physical damage, uh, the woman is treated as in the same way that a man would be, would be uh, remunerated accordingly. I, Admittedly, okay. this is... This is the verse that we use and have used in the women's movement to say, <coughs> okay, folks, this is, it's, not a, it's not treated the same way as a whole life. Uh, understood, 100%, and I agree. The fetus, not a woman. Make it clear. The fetus well, is not... Is there, why is there the statement at the end, and if there is death, you shall give a life for a life? Isn't that already stated elsewhere? It's a good question. Let me look it up while we're talking. Wow. One second. Seems that the editor did not do a good job here. Yes, yeah, so uh, that's why we have the Talmud to interpret verses that are. Whenever a verse is not well constructed, we there's something to extrapolate from the nuances, different than usual than usual writing. That's what. That's how. That's what the oral Torah is. Is when you have a verse that seems to be off. So we don't assume it was just a bad editor. 
we assume there's, a, there's something, there's a reason why it changes the wording. So you have a valid question, and what we extrapolate, from, and, 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 I have, and actually have, Ron has a valid point, meaning if we're saying that we're just going with the regular form of damages, which is the previous verses, as Nader just mentioned, um, then why does it mention that if there's death, a life for a life? Why, why is that... No, it's why is that restated, even though it would be the same as other cases? So you have a valid point, Ron. But uh, but again, we're we're not focusing on that part. For us, it's a, it's it's about the fetus. We're going to focus in on the fetus, and uh, when we learn Gemara one day together, Shama, then uh, I don't want you okay. to suffer. And we'll uh, discuss the rest of the verse. But yeah, you have valid points. Um, let me just look it up quickly to see if I missed anything here. Um, it's just criticism of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's all. Exodus 21, 22. I'm going to ignore that comment. Um, 22, 23. Let me just see if anyone addresses your point here quickly. Now we'll move on. Um... Okay, so yeah, I don't see, I don't see it offhand, but it's a valid point. Okay, so let's move on to the next source. So again, this the implication of source number five here is very clearly seems to be implying that the fetus is not considered a full life, and therefore it's purely financial remuneration. Okay, now number six. Um, this is from Maimonides. He says like this, he says, the Torah prohibits having mercy for the life of a pursuer. As we all know, we discussed many times what a pursuer is. A pursuer is, in Hebrew, the term is rodef, which means um, one who is um, in the act of trying to kill another human being, chasing someone with a gun or whatever the case is. Um, so in that context, Allah is, you, every, even an innocent bystander who's not being chased has a right to kill the pursuer. The pursuer forfeits his life. By pursuing another human being, you automatically forfeit your life, and therefore you have a right to be killed um, to do, either to defend the victim, but it doesn't have to be the victim himself, it doesn't have to be self-defense, or the other way to understand it is you're saving the person from the sin of murder by killing him. Okay? Um, those are the two understandings in the Gemara, but either case, so it's not only, as we discussed many times in, in Judaism, it's not only you have a right, you, you're able to kill him. If you see someone pursuing someone, you have an obligation. You can't have mercy. If you see someone um, you know, chasing someone to kill them, you're obligated to go and do what you can. Obviously, you don't have to risk your life, as we discussed, but if you have a gun and you can shoot from a safe distance, um, whatever the case is, and aim properly, you know what you're doing, then you have an obligation to save the person's life. So the Torah prohibits having mercy for the life of pursuer. Don't say, well, you know, I'm a liberal, I don't kill people, it's hard for me to kill, you know. No, if you could save someone's life, you have to do it. Therefore, he says, the sages rule, um, that this is the Maimonides and the laws of murder. The sages ruled that one may cut the fetus inside a woman who has difficulty giving birth, whether through medicine or by hand, as though he was pursuing her to kill her. So says Maimonides, this is the permission of abortion, is 
is because we view the fetus as in a case again where the fetus is somehow the pregnancy or the birth well actually the birth is somehow endangering, endangering the life of the mother so therefore we have a right not only a right we have an obligation to abort the fetus so this is also um, uh, uh, interesting thing that we find maybe different than Christianity is that in Judaism if the fetus is endangering the life of the mother there's a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah it's a chiv, it's, it's, an, it's obligatory to abort the fetus. You can't say, well, the mother says, I want to take the chance, you know, even though the doctors are saying this, this if I bring this baby to term, it's going to harm me um, and it might endanger my life. No, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to abort the child. I'm going to take the that's chance. That's not what happened in Shtisel. That's why, that's why you should not get your Torah from Shtisel. <laughs> not a good thing. Usually, Netflix is not... Uh, they don't always know uh, Talmud. But uh, in many cases, they get it right. Um, I don't know which episode you're referring to specifically, but... She was a severe, severe diabetic and chose to get pregnant regardless of her terrible comorbidities. Did she ask the rabbi? And of course. And he said, what did the rabbi say? They ended up taking their chances. All right, so again, it could be. I, mean, I, didn't, see, I didn't see that episode. I actually didn't see any episodes, to be honest. But um, the, it could be, again, I don't know the nuances of that case, so we'd have to see if the numbers of morbidity were very low the you know the risk involved i don't know what the numbers are for diabetics getting pregnant in her specific case so maybe there was some validity to i, I can't i can't comment if you send me the a link to the show to that episode or just send me the I'll, I'll watch it and then we can comment i don't want to just bash netflix so easily um okay so so where am I here? If you use that argument of a rodef, the most common time that you have a death of a delivering mother is actually, I was just looking this up, 45% of all, this is the majority of all deaths occur 42 days postpartum because of hemorrhage. So, and there are 800 women that die a year in the United States, the worst rate of all developed countries. So the question is, if you know that you have a rodef that is potentially causing women to die at 42 days after they gave birth, is is not the ba baby considered a rodef all the way through 42 so days? So you're saying every pregnancy, you're saying every pregnancy is a rodef, if I understand you correctly. Is that yes. what you All right, so, so that obviously is not going to work. I'll tell you why. I mean, the way I understand it is because, listen, get, you're right, getting pregnant and giving birth it has a risk unto itself without even for a purely healthy woman as you're stating you know as many things can happen along the pregnancy um, there's always there's a risk in in all pregnancies that is true but that risk again is not sufficient to, to say that we can just abort every child because if there has to be a, a substantial risk as we're going to see statistically and medically to allow the abortion um, so it's what but, I, but meaning what's natural, and by the way, it used to be much worse, as you know, mo many women died in, child, in childbirth um, not so long ago, probably uh, 60, 70 years ago, when they got infections, and, and you're right, they died after childbirth, or during childbirth, um, either from hemorrhaging or different infections. So, 
it was the numbers used to be much higher. I think the numbers are going down in the sense of, you know, today we have much more sterile environments, much less infection officially. Depends which hospital you go to. Depending on what socioeconomic or racial group you're looking at. That's true. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to go there. It's too emotional a topic. Um, but uh, but but I'm saying is compared to you know 60, 70 years ago. I think I believe the numbers are much lower. Again, I never saw them, but I think it's obvious that they are. But um, okay, so but that's a that's a good point, Ron. So we'll, so that's a good point in the sense of we need to figure out what level what's considered dangerous, defining danger to the mother's life. So that is that's a key part of this of the of the um, again. The non, it's not so clear. Very is a gray area in defining that, and that's what we get to. That's why each case is nuanced. So it's a good point to bring up. But but let's get back to my manly. So my manly is saying, therefore, the reason why the sages allow an abortion is because we consider the the fetus a rodef, um, and therefore we can abort the child. He was pursuing her to kill her. Okay, but once he produces his head, once the head comes out. Um, in in the birth, we do not touch him. We do not push off one life for another. This is nature, and there's a big question: what he means by that last statement. This is nature, which might be relevant to Ron's last statement. If something's natural, um, part of trouble. The natural risks involved in in pregnancy and childbirth, that is, we don't consider that a risk in the sense, like like Ron's pointing out. Every pregnancy and childbirth has risk involved, but that's nature. That's part of nature. Um, but but getting back to the point here, so what I, what, the reason why I'm bringing this source, the reason why this is important, it seems the implication seems to be, if from this at least, that if the um, if the baby is not endangering the life of the mother, abortion will be pro prohibited. Okay, we need to know why it's prohibited. If we're saying it's not really a life, as long as it's in utero, so then why why is the implication for Maimonides? It's only permitted. To abort the child if um, the woman is is uh, is endangered by the by the pregnancy or the birth, or actually here he's talking about a birth. Okay, that's one aspect. So that's so here would be a source which seems to imply the opposite that abortion is even though um, we said in number five it's not considered a full life the fetus, but abortion is still going to be prohibited. And only it's only permitted and is limited, the permission is limited to cases where it's endangering the life of the mother. So that's number one. So let's look at some now of the rabbinical sources. Um, let's move on to this. Yosef. Yes. Maimonides seems to contradict the previous one in saying that the fetus <clears throat> is both a life and not a life. It's a life in that it can be considered a pursuer. I mean... And it's not a life because it's it, prior to its birth. It's not a life, as they say at the end. You can't sacrifice one life for another after it comes out. Right. So he's kind of having his cake and eating right. it too. It's both right. So well, the pursuer part doesn't bother. Meaning a pursuer doesn't have to be human. Let's say a car is is rolling down a hill. You know, I'm allowed to. You know whatever, flatten the tires of the car, or break, you know, smash the car to save a life. So a pursuer doesn't have to be human. The chiddush is, even a human, you can you could even take a human life who's a pursuer. But it's, animals is the same thing. I can kill, I can shoot your, you know, there's a case here in the neighborhood where a pit bull, uh, you know, started chasing a guy, he just took out his gun and shot it between the eyes. His neighbor's pit bull. Um, 
and then he called the cops. Yeah, that, so, you know, see, that's kind of circular reasoning. If this is a fetus, this is not a wolf fetus, this is a human fetus. The implication of a pursuer in a in case of a human fetus is that it has some will of its own that it's pursuing. Oh, so that's, so that's a very important point you bring it up. Um, that actually this is a proof, they bring this as a proof text that it's not about the will. Obviously a baby doesn't have a will to harm its mother. No, it's a good, it's a very important point you bring up, um, which I'm disagreeing with you, but it's, but I'm glad you brought that up, because it's important to understand is that what we see from here, you know, the, the general law of a pursuer is someone's chasing someone with a gun. They want to kill, there's a pursuer and there's a victim. There's the pursued. So we say we can kill the pursuer in order to save the life of the pursued. But that's a case, that's a very different case. That's where the person is, is intentionally trying to kill them. In the case of abortion, and it's a very, very important point you bring up, is the baby did nothing wrong. The baby's just going about his merry way. It's not trying to harm the mother. It's causing the mother, you know, gestational diabetes, whatever, whatever the, the fetus is doing that's endangering the life of the mother. Um, it's not doing it on its own accord. It didn't make a decision say, I hate my mother. It's not a teenager yet. Right? So it couldn't uh, make that decision. You know, it's, babies don't hate their mothers until they become teenagers. Right? So, so there's, not, there's no will on the behalf of the fetus to harm the mother. And still in all, you're right, my mind is saying there's a pursuer here. We consider that baby pursuer. You see from here a major cloud, a major principle that they derive from here, and this was, like we spoke about by COVID, that to be a pursuer you don't have to be intentional. Um, to be considered a pursuer that we can take your life, even if it's unintentional. So let's say I didn't know I have COVID, and I walk into a show, that's what we discussed last year, and I walk into a public place where I might be spreading it to everyone. Um, so even if your intention, your intention was to visit grandma in the, in the nursing home, as we discussed a year, almost two years ago already, wow. It's been a long time. So right, you're visiting grandma in the nursing home because you want to help her out, you want to bring her food, chicken soup, whatever. But meanwhile, you, you, there, you, you know, as you, we found out that you're positive for COVID, and we see you working, walking into the nursing home. We said we have a right to shoot you before you enter the nursing home and, and infect grandma. Okay, that's if you remember that. It's a big chiddush, but one of the sources is exactly from here, where the fact is we allow you, we allow the the killing of a fetus, or not the killing. That's a loaded term. The destruction of a fetus. Um, even though the fetus did not willfully try to harm anyone. So it's, so it's a valid point you bring up, but I'm disagreeing with you that... It may not be a question of will, it's more a question of agency. It's the fetus can cause the mother to die. Yeah, exactly, but I don't see anywhere from that that it's a life. That's my point. No, you're, no, you're deducing that it's a life. No, I'm saying it's a problematic kind of statement, giving it the status of a pursuer above and beyond being just a fetus. It's, yes, it's, okay, but it doesn't mean it's a life. That's what I'm saying. Pers to be a pursuer doesn't have to be a life. That's my point. Necessarily. Um, it's even a life. I would base some ra other rabbis have problem with Maimonides saying this. By the way, it's the opposite. What I'm saying is, is the fact, my question is like this, I guess. You know, do you see from Maimonides, from this halacha in Maimonides, that it's, a fetus is not considered a full life? Or not? What, what, what would you deduce from this statement? I, I see from this that, that Maimonides wants an outcome where if a mother's life is threatened by a fetus, you can destroy the fetus. I see that. 
it's this explanation that, that I think is problematic. But on the contrary, what he seems to be saying at the end is once it comes out, so now it's one life versus another. They're equal pursuers, so to speak. It's like two people having a fight. The question is, do you say a pursuer there? You know, it's two people are fighting. I don't. We, uh, a third party can't come and shoot one of them and say, well, he was a pursuer. It doesn't work like that. Right? So once it's a full life, we're no longer going to consider the baby a pursuer. It's only for whatever reason, Rab- Rabbam is saying, because it's not a full life, um, on, when it's in utero, we consider the baby a pursuer and you can kill a baby, which is, that's the question. Why does it have to be a pursuer? If it's not a full life, um, you know, so what's the problem? But my man is, has to bring in this concept of pursuer here, which the Talmud doesn't, by the way. The Talmud doesn't refer to the fetus as a pursuer. Maimonides understands this is the next source. So let's move on to number seven here. The, the source for Maimonides is this Mishnah in uh, Mishnayot Ahalot, um, which is a obscure Masechet. Uh, uh, it's called Ahalot. It's dealing with the laws of purity and impurity. And once it starts talking about pregnancy, a woman giving birth, so it does. It gets into this thing of abortion. Just mentions it. Um, so this is the Mishnah, famous Mishnah. It says of a woman. Um, it's a little graphic. It says a woman is having trouble giving birth. We cut the fetus in her womb and produce it limb by limb by limb. So meaning, she's the, whatever the case is. I, I don't know, Alan. Maybe you can give us some examples of this. But a woman can't get the baby out. It's she's hemorrhaging, let's say, and she's going to die unless we literally chop up um, the only. You know, it's for whatever reason they couldn't do a cesarean in the situation, so they literally have to take the baby out piece by piece and it says her life proceeds, that means it's, it's a choice between the fetus or the mother, the mother um, overrules the fetus, but again it says, the mission goes on to say, once the majority of the fetus has emerged, or really as the Rama says the head, the head is considered the majority we do not touch it, we do not push away one life for another, so here it doesn't mention anything about um, about the pursuer. Maimonides understood the, this, this Mishnah as being um, uh, the, the understanding of the Mishnah is pursuer. Wow, Ron, very interesting num- statistics. Someone wants to see Ron posted the statistics for deaths for 100,000 live births. If you look in the chat, it's pretty scary. Uh, the U.S. <laughs> I think we should go to socialized medicine. Seems like socialized medicine is doing a lot better, at least with these statistics. Um, okay, so. Um, Yossi? Yeah. If I can introduce a lighter note, it's only when the angel comes to erase everything that the fetus has learned and creates this. Right. Which is what the uh, the folk t- the folk tales that the rabbis are talking about. Until that happens, there's no life. It's a fetus. No what? It's a fetus. It's not a person. I so the, think, until it's touched by that angel. I think even after the angel, it's still a fetus. <laughs> no, because you have to be out in the womb to get this to happen. Oh really? What do you mean? I thought that happens in the womb. Okay. I would say the opposite. When the fetus knows more Torah, it's more of a life. When it forgets the Torah, it's less of a more Torah you know. The yeah, but you have to learn it. That's anyway, uh, a different okay. discussion. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. Okay, so again, so this uh, quote here from the Mishnah, the question is like this. It's interesting. The implication here 
is, as we said, this implication in, in from this mission is only again if it's threatening the life of the mother. Um, but if there's no threat to the life of the mother, um, um, it, it maybe even the implication, by the way, I mean, I'm just trying, I'm just thinking as I'm talking, you know, if you read the mission, it sounds like maybe it even is considered a full life. And maybe from a man, he's, how do you read this mission? Meaning, how do you understand the implication of this mission? If a woman is having trouble, cut the fetus in the room, her life proceeds. It sounds like there's two lives here. This would be one way of reading the Mishnah. There's two lives. There's the fetus, the life of the fetus, and the life of the mother. For whatever reason, we're saying the mother's life overrides the life of the fetus. Maybe because of Rodef, as the Rambam says, but they're both lives. This is really what Shelley, the implication, I guess, maybe Shelley was maybe you were implying this before, but that would be one way of reading this Mishnah, that the implication would be a fetus is considered a life, just the mother's life overrides the life of the fetus. It says her life proceeds. Okay? Yeah, I, think, I think my mind has injected an explanation, not that I want to criticize my mind, but the explanation is superfluous. You don't, you don't really need an explanation because the Mishnah says clearly well, we make a choice. Her life. Right, but the, but Ramani is trying to explain why does her life proceed. I, I understand, but I think his explanation is a bit problematic. Well, you muted one, muted, unmute. I, I think it's clear that it's basically trying to differentiate itself from Christianity. In in what sense? You're saying. What do you because mean? Because that statement is exactly opposite in Christianity. So you're agreeing that the implication here, the fetus is a life or not? What's the implication? I think they're looking, they wanted the answer to be the mother is superior to whatever. And however you get to that answer sounds good. Well, I don't think so. Because by the time this mission came around, Christianity wasn't much yet. I mean, so I don't think they're worried about Christianity. No, but I've been saying other, other religions might have, I don't know what... Okay. Precedent for Christianity. Yeah. Bottom line is the mother was superior, and that was the critical thing, I think. Yes, that's for sure. Maimonides. By the time Maimonides comes along, Christianity is pretty uh, powerful. Right. By the time of the Mishnah, it wasn't. So I think. But that's not. We're now. We're now with the Mishnah, but the the other one, it was. It was from Maimonides. Here, it's a different, a different statement completely. I, I wouldn't say Mishnah, you know, gets started at 300, but you have these major uh, Christianity conventions already in the 300s. So yeah. between 300 and 800, when the Mishnah is compiled, Christianity is pretty strong. Right, but another thing is, I just want to, I don't know what Christianity held at that point, if they even have a view on this. So that's a different question, which we have to look at the history no, of abortion. It, it's very, no, yes, it's very clear. Because the mother has been baptized, she is therefore going to go to heaven, and you have to save the baby because the baby ain't been baptized yet. No, I'm saying, but right. that might That's be clear in today's Christianity. I don't know if it, in the original Christianity it took off very slowly. They didn't have no, many, very, have very many rules. Um, they more or less went. It was it was a branch of Judaism in the beginning where they were going with the Jewish rules. So I don't know at which point this whole theology on abortion came about. I don't know. I'm not saying I do it. I'm not saying one way or the other. I have no idea. Um, anyway, so, so another. So again, it's one way of reading the Mishnah would be it's implying that the fetus 
is a full life, and just the mother's life precedes that. That would be one way of reading. The other thing I want to point out here is another implication, again, which I'm just throwing out there, which is the you could whenever there's a there's a a principle in halacha in when you're dealing with halachic rulings that we only take out the least chiddush uh, from what we see. That you can only take out. The, the, the lowest possible denominator. In this case, the Mishnah is specifically talking about a woman in labor. So that means we're talking about the last stages of pregnancy. So all we can know from this Mishnah really, in those assuming we're saying is the mother's life, that you're allowed to abort, the mother's life overrides, or the implication of life, as maybe we're saying, is only at the, literally at the end when the woman's in delivery already. So maybe only at that time there's an implication that the fetus is a, is a life. And still in all the mother's life overrides the life of the fetus. But we don't know what will be in previous stages of the pregnancy. You know, it's at, at 30 weeks, at uh, you know, below 30 weeks, 40 weeks, you know, whatever it is. Um, my, way before this, okay, 26 weeks, what is halacha's, what's the implication of halacha there? From here, it's specifically talking about a case where a woman, woman is in the throes of labor. And my mind is also, I'm just looking back here, my mind is also used the language, one may cut the fetus inside a woman who has difficulty giving birth. So the permission to abort obviously will be even earlier. If we're saying even at that point when the baby's on the way out, but as far as the implication for that the fetus being alive, as we're saying maybe from the Mishnah, the language of the Mishnah, that you only see that limited to this case it's discussing where she's already in the throes of labor. Yes, Shelley. You're muted. If a woman is in 30 weeks and she's dying from her pregnancy, she's having trouble giving birth. I mean, so it kind of begs the question if she's having... You know, if you're dying, you're going to have a lot of trouble giving birth. So Yeah, but I'm saying is the case specifically we're talking about is is she's at this point having trouble giving birth. It doesn't mean she's having troubles in the pregnancy. It sounds like she started her labor and whatever is happening is, is causing her life to be in danger. That's the implication. Again, you, 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 can re- you can interpret it slightly different. Maybe you're right. But so I'm just going to move. I'm just basically the goal here is to just show you that there's many conflicting sources. So if you look at this source, move on to number eight here, it seems also to be very conflicting because until now, most of the implications we're saying it seems to imply it's not a it's not a life. But here it says the Gemara in Erechin, a different tractate, is talking about uh, um, also talking over there. It's talking about executing a woman who's pregnant, and we'll get to that. But it says there, if a woman is on the birthing table again, she's in she's in labor. And she dies, so the woman dies, and it is Shabbat. So we're allowed to violate Shabbat to save the fetus, bring a knife and tear open her belly and produce the child. So post mortem, the woman died in, during childbirth. We violate Shabbat to save the baby. Now, how can we allow? Uh, how can we allow? There's no if the baby's not a full life. Where's the pikuach nefesh? As we know, we only violate Shabbos for pikuach nefesh. So is this pikuach nefesh? If it's not a full life, the implication would be here, we consider this baby a complete life. Ron, you seem troubled by that. No, it seems like it's obvious because the end result, the assumption is that by removing the baby, that the baby will have a full life. Right. Because of the but, but do we allow to violate Shabbos for a future full life, for a future life? It's a big chiddush. That's correct. I'm saying that that 
what I'm saying is you could understand the, the simple implication would be we don't, God forbid, you violate Shabbos for, you know, know, do you, do you violate actually I had this question, for example you can go to a conference on Shabbat if you walk there, if we think that it's going to help you save a future life. Yeah, but that's not a violation of Shabbos, that's the point. I understand. The, the example, my analogy... Even more so, even more so you should save a life because you have a life lifanecha. It's right in front of you, save so a life. Maybe I'll just give, this is a case I actually had a few weeks ago. Um, uh, a rabbi in the community called me that they have a congregant. Was, actually, the congregant was in New York for fertility treatments, and she wanted to know her she her doctor said she had her, she was ovulating it was an IVF case and her doctor wanted her to come in on Saturday um, to for egg retrieval okay on Saturday so she wanted to know can she drive can she violate Shabbos for the egg retrieval because that's when the doctor said she has to come so uh, he told the rabbi no 100% not you cannot uh, violate no one there's no post because I'm aware of in the world that would allow violation of Shabbos for egg retrieval. First of all, you can work it out, come in Saturday night, after Shabbos, come in Friday, right before Shabbos. Um, so, I'm just, you know, that's maybe, I don't know if it's a good analogy, um, but I'm trying to show you, Ron, that we don't violate Shabbos for a potential life. Okay, you know, we don't say, well, you know, this is going to produce a life in the future, this egg retrieval, therefore we're going to allow you to, to, to violate Shabbat for the egg retrieval. No, do it on Sunday or wait till the next cycle. I mean, it's not. It's not. I'm not you have to be sensitive. About egg retrieval. No, I understand, but I'm. I'm saying, why to you? Why is that an analogous? You have a lifanecha issue. So the egg is lifanecha. I could produce no, a life. No, it's not. That's not a life. You have a fetus with a pumping heart and living organism. That's your lifanecha. You sound like a you know Christian right now. Where are you going with? <laughs> Hey, you have something moving. You sound like you're from Texas. You can survive. Yeah, so it's a, a potential viable life. But that's different than an egg. Okay, yeah, point taken. But I'm just showing you that the simple implication, meaning we don't violate Shabbos for potential life, generally speaking. We violate Shabbos to save a life, an existing life. So the simple reading of this Gemara would seem to imply that the fetus is considered the fact that we're allowing violation of Shabbos, one can imply that there is a that this is considered somewhat of a life. So you so Ron is arguing, validly so, that maybe we we also allow violation of Shabbos for potential life. But then you have to know where to draw the line. Because again, egg retrieval is potential life also. So yes, this might have a beating heart, this is much more this is viable right now, as opposed to an egg, it's not viable. So yes, you have all these all these implications um, are correct, and, and th there's two ways to understand this Gemara. But I'm just pointing out there seems to be conflicting implications in all these sources. Because um, the next source says very clearly, by the way, the Mishnah Nida 9, for a day old child, one who, one who kills it is liable. So again, here's a very clear implication, um, just like we said originally, that th but this is from the Talmud, that killing a child who's not a day old, that means a, a in utero child, who's not yet born, not yet a day old, there's no liability as far as capital punishment, as we said before. So again, it goes back and forth um, in the different uh, different implications here of the verses. And we're now out of time, so I will stop here, and hopefully next week we'll go through a few more of the sources, but get to the applications um, to Texas state law and how to uh, and how that applies to us as Jews.
within this great state of Texas. According to some, it's great.